bonjour, 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 bonjour. Welcome back, uh, sp sp spooky sp sp people. <laughs> um, welcome back to the second part of our discussions about gothic based musical theatre. Uh, we have three more musicals to talk about with you today. Uh, well, I say talk with you, you're not going to uh, uh, contribute. But feel free to take to the social medias and tell, you, tell us your feelings, if you agree or if you disagree. If you disagree, you're wrong. Hopefully you enjoyed the first part and strap on in for number three, four and five. So, what's next? Uh, up next we have The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <gasps> the best so get one. your notes ready, pals. <laughs> get your notes ready. So we have music by Alan Menken and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. Who ever heard of those guys? I know. Has what been. did they? Oh, what did they? <laughs> what else have they done? Um, so the book. Okay, so <laughs> James Lapine um, wrote the German version, and Peter Parnell wrote the English version. The original German production opened on the fifth of June, nineteen ninety nine, and the US regional production um, opened on the twenty eighth of October, twenty fourteen. It has not yet been produced on Broadway, and I have feelings on that. I'm sure we'll get to it. Um, the source material is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, a 1996 animated film produced by Disney, and it was directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale. This, in turn, is based upon the novel of the same name by Victor Hugo, but it was originally published under the name Notre Dame de Paris in 1831. And a fun fact about the source material, um, Hugo actually wrote this work with an agenda. Ooh. So the novel was created in an attempt to make others aware of the value of Gothic architecture. So at the time, the medieval architecture within Paris was at continual risk of demolition and Hugo was passionate about saving it and this book was one of his attempts to raise awareness of its threatened, threatened existence. And this explains why there is so much excessive description of the cathedral's architecture in the novel. Because it's actually all about the building and really not, <laughs> this, not the storyline. Um, because it encouraged people to go and the book was famous, did well. People went to see the, see the cathedral and they were like, oh, it's falling apart and it's really unclean. We better do something about that. There you go. Oh my, the magic of a book, my God. The magic of a book, see? Over to you, McLeish. So Hunchback... What makes a monster and what makes a man? This is the central theme of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, a sweeping grand scale musical from Disney Theatrical, based on the 1996 Disney film and Victor Hugo's 1831 novel. Hunchback of Notre Dame tells the story of Quasimodo, the hunchbacked bell ringer of Notre Dame, and his desire to one day be a part of the outside world. Relatable? I think so. <laughs> um, hence the choice of song in the concert we did. When he summons the courage to attend the Feast of Fools, he meets Esmeralda, a compassionate... Now, I will say this word, although I don't necessarily think it's politically correct now. Gypsy, it's how she's referred to in the film and the show, who protects him from an angry mob. But at the same time, Quasimodo's master, the Archdeacon Dom Claude Frollo, and the new captain of the guard, Phoebus de Martin, fall in love with the beautiful girl. Adding to Quasimodo's struggle in his punishment and derision from Frollo, following years of psychological abuse and the danger posed by the, again, gypsies, who are willing to kill any outsider who venture into their secret hideout. 
But before Paris is burnt to the ground, will Quasimodo be able to save Esmeralda from Frollo's lust and anger? Will she return Quasimodo's affection? Who is the true monster of Notre Dame? Oh. Mm-hmm. Very good. That was chilling. Very, that was very Thank good. Thank you. A bit of a t- mouthful. Saying Quasimodo 73 times is quite tricky. <laughs> um, but there you are. I have been very lucky and I have seen this on stage. Oh. Uh, they, they re... Um, oh my God, what do you call it? Like They remounted it in Berlin um, in 2017, I think it was. Um, so I went through to Berlin and I got to see the Disney production that they did. It was the production they did in New York or in New Jersey mm-hmm. at the, the uh, paper mill. And uh, I got to see it and, and Stage Entertainment produced it in Berlin. Was it the same cast? Awesome. Huh? Was it the same cast? It was a German cast. It was in German. In German. Uh, But it was the same uh, staging. It was the the, the same director. Um, And it was incredible. And (gasps) um, I always feel a little bit, this sounds really awful, a little bit disillusioned by some of the musicals I've seen in Germany because I I always think it's not quite there all the time. Like it's always missing a little piece of magic. This had everything. They had the full-on choir on stage, and it was oh, yes. um, when it was in Berlin. They used two choirs so that the 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 choirs obviously didn't have to do every show because they weren't all professional actors. So they mm-hmm. did it like this. Um, so they had two choirs, and then when it went to Stuttgart um, the following year, they did the same with two um, the choirs in Stuttgart. So they were all on stage the whole time. Like <gasps> it was amazing. The ending where Frollo dies was harrowing. Like. They like dropped this. Th- oh my god, it was really good. There's one bit that was really boring, and it's the boring song with the statue. Oh, I know what you're talking called? about. Yeah, and he takes off his head. That was really boring. Yeah. <laughs> but everything it's like the else. Back to. Yeah, it <laughs> was. Stupid and like I was that. like, "Is this here for like? Is there a set change happening?" I was like trying to look like why it was there, <laughs> um, but it was amazing. It was really, really good. Really, really good. It's so good. I it. Yes. Um, so I loved it. Like I was blown away. Goosebumps all around. I would love quite, to see it. It's quite good in German. Like it's quite obviously because it was written as well. Like originally, yeah. so they could they could have a lot more um, leeway with the lyrics. But there's something very like chilling, especially with um, Frollo. Like it's really sinister and it's really good. Yeah. Well, I hope you don't mind me saying. And I don't mean this. This is going to sound like really sort of like oh, make me sound really stupid and really like. There's a word, but I can't think what the word is. But um, German is quite a harsh language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's it is quite a it is quite a guttural, guttural language. It's a lovely language, but it's like it is quite it is quite harsh. And I think it goes well with the orchestrations of Hunchback because Hunchback is full on yeah. in terms of its score. Um, yeah. It hits Ge- you like a wall of sound. The good German musicals are the the gothic style, so they have something. They have a, a one for Rebecca. And it's very mm-hmm. good. Well, the beginning's a bit tweet, but the 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 Mrs. Danvers and all that sort of yeah. when they're in Manderley, it's very gothic and it, it lends itself to the language very very well. Um, mm-hmm. And they have Tanz der Vampire, which is uh, like Dance of the Vampires. It's an old mm-hmm. uh, Mel Brooks movie, um, and the gothicness really, yeah, uh, it does lend itself to that. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does suit it. But yeah, I'm gonna put this out there. I think Hunchback is the best Disney score. I will fully yeah. agree with that. Yeah. It's so full and rich. 
yeah. so good. And there's so much thought and attention taken to it, not just in the film, because I think a lot of people think the musical is just a blanket copy of the film, like what we were talking about earlier. Mm. But actually, what Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz say it is, is that it's a musical adaptation of the book taking the music from the Disney film, which is fully, fully true. Because yeah. is it faithful to the source material? Well, it is closer than you might think. So the musical actually reinstates plot elements from the book that were altered for the Disney film because it is a kid's film at the end of the day. <laughs> so like I, the book, it was not it was not a kid's musical. Yeah. I, <laughs> I would have found that very show. harrowing if I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a kid's show. Um so like so the changes or what they've changed back is that Frollo is the Archdeacon of Notre Dame as opposed to a judge in the film. Quasimodo is depicted as being deaf and can lip-read and only hear very faintly, which is accurate to the book, as it's written that he's gone deaf after many years of ringing the bells. And, spoiler alert, Esmeralda does indeed die at the end of the musical, which is similar to the, which is what happens in the book, albeit in slightly different means. She is hanged in the book, and she is... Let's say dies of smoke inhalation at the end of the. It's a nice way of putting <laughs> the end it. of the musical. Yeah. Um, yes, she isn't exactly burnt at the stake, um, but uh, yeah, which is big, big changes from what the original Disney film is. Uh, so it yeah. definitely is not a family day out to the theatre. <laughs> Also, just that, sorry to bring up the German thing again, but I always think it's really interesting that it's not called The Hunchback of Notre Dame in German. It's called The Bell Ringer of Notre Dame. Ah. Kind of like what I was harking on about on the Wuthering Heights episode is that all the adaptations down the years have depicted it as this great, tragic story. And when you pick up the book and Hugo keeps talking about flying buttresses, you're going, what the hell is this? <laughs> I'm expecting to be reading about Quasimodo and Esmeralda when actually I'd say a good like 90% of the book is just talking about gothic architecture because that was the point. Yeah. <laughs> the I like point. to think that the flying buttresses were acrobats during the 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 day of fun that they have where people have their bums out. <laughs> <laughs> That's my The Feast of Fools <laughs> and the Flying Buttresses. Oh, geez. That's a book I'm going to write. Um, That's a good title. Thank you. Um, one thing, one of my favourite numbers in the show is the Bells of Notre Dame that opens it. And so good. It was not originally intended to be in the show. It was a last minute addition. Um, I oh. read. Originally, it was going to be just little um, kind of a montage tableau type thing. And I reckon it probably would still be Clopin, who's telling the story of what happened with, with Quasimodo. But... Um, for some reason, last minute, they decided that it was going to be a song instead. And so one of the greatest songs in the whole thing got um, added last minute. The show opened with everyone like a blank canvas and they all became the characters during the opening song. Oh, that's so, cool. So like, like that. the guy that played Quasimodo is like, he was, he was like standing tall and then he like at the very end, he turned around and he did this. Oh, you, I'm, on, I'm not on camera, sorry. He like <laughs> wiped <Yeah>. his hand. <laughs> He wiped his hand across his face and then he turned around and he had like got the marks and he'd like yeah. was Ooh. was his created his hunch. So cool. It was really clever. And that's kind of how 
I wondered what they would have done if they didn't have this opening song because mm-hmm. it, yeah. it was there yeah. and it kind of set up the point of the choir yeah because otherwise you'd be a bit like why is there a choir on stage yeah <laughs> they're yeah. not doing all the gothic stuff like oh. um the on track yeah. is one of the greatest so things good. ever so good such oh a good piece God. of music so good it's kind of like we know what we're saying like it's a it's a disney film and they weren't like the music almost like it's like a trickery it's like catchy music but actually giving kids this incredible score that they don't yeah. even appreciate how well, i mean when we were kids i remember going to see it at the cinema and i don't remember thinking this is an amazing score i was like yeah. eh. but <laughs> now i'm like look back and i'm like oh my god this music is so good and yeah. it was put in like a disney film you think that's amazing yeah. like yeah. that the amount of people that have seen it because of that. Yeah. yeah, it's also incredibly complicated. I think it sounds so incredible, but actually when you see it broken down in a score or trying to sing it, because my choir have done on tracks, um, it's actually incredibly complicated. And there's so much of passing of the ball and all that kind of stuff. There's a bit at the very, very, very beginning of the on tract where it sounds like there's women's voices going, ha, 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 But it's, the sopranos and alters are doing their own individual notes, so they've just got to time it perfectly where the sopranos are like, ah, That's ah, crazy. Ah, ah. <laughs> and then the altos, like, interject. <laughs> and it's, but it's, like, incredibly complicated, and it's insane. The score is so well written. It's so beautiful. I love it. Yeah, it's so But it's really so hard. Um, well, we're on the score, do you mind if I talk about the use of Latin for two minutes? <laughs> Knock yourself out. <laughs> a little bit like Sweeney Todd. Um, so Latin phrases that are common within religious works, such as the Requiem, are present within the score of Hunchback. Uh, the first thing the audience actually hears is a Latin translation of the song Someday, which was cut from the film, but appears in the musical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the repeated use of the phrase Kyrie eleison, which translates to Lord have mercy. It's a very Ooh. apt lyric for this oh, show. Yes. <laughs> um, this is an v- incredibly common phrase that's used in mass, and a kyrie is often a movement in a requiem mass as well. Um, and the score also quotes the words "dies ire" as well. <laughs> so I jumped, I jumped the gun there. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. That's okay. Um, also, we have Hellfire, which is a song sung by Frollo about his burgeoning lustful obsession with Esmeralda. And this quotes parts of the Confiteor, which is a prayer that's also common in the Roman Catholic Mass. So one could say they really did their research mm-hmm. when it comes to using like traditional Latin terms that are mm-hmm. still present um, in like church, Roman Catholic church services today. And it's so clever because it's repeated all the time. Mm-hmm. So it do, that does th- those words in itself become part of the story, and when you know what they mean, it just opens it up at an even bigger level <laughs> as to how good it is. Yeah. I may be wrong in saying this, but I believe that there is some of the Latin that is just complete gibberish and doesn't actually mean anything. You are indeed you are indeed correct. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Stephen. So <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the Latin does actually translate. Um, to to mean to mean stuff, but some of it, yeah, is effectively just invoking the idea <laughs> that also, it is Latin. And a thing that I found about Hellfire is it is also inspired by Te Deum from Tosca, uh, Puccini's Tosca. 
Yes, what yeah. a classic of the yeah. opera repertoire. Get it listened to, friends. It's the conclusion of Act One of Tosca by Puccini, and it is brilliant. It's well, effectively that... framed like a prayer, um, and it's so good. Yeah. It's so it's so epic. And actually, you saying that, you can see a lot of parallels between that piece of music and actually the score yeah. of Hunchback. It's so good. So good. Big fans of the Stephen Schwartz. Big fans. Big fans. I, I think so good. I, I was watching an interview a few years ago now, and I was trying to find it today, and I couldn't, um, about him talking. He was being interviewed by this uh, uh, journalist, and he was talking about how, like, he says that Broadway doesn't really like him. Like, oh. they've never really warmed to him. And uh, he, like, he thinks that that could be part of the reason that Hunchback never went on to Broadway. Um, okay. And I, I was just like, I was like, what don't you like about him? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, he's, he's got an Oscar. He's giving you one of your biggest like, hits. <laughs> yeah, like, he... There is that, but then you're also like, but Wicked is also doing incredibly well for itself. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he and they revived um, Pippin. So weird. Yeah. Like I just think I'm like, oh right, okay. Like he I mean, I think he's got lots of great, like, non famous things. Like he wrote for the musical Working and I think Working's got some great songs in it. Like he didn't write them all, he was like a collaboration. Um but I think there's some like great Stephen Schwartz stuff out there. Um Oh, absolutely. And yeah, he just sort of says that I don't know, like they they, they, they don't really warm to him and because um, I think his Very son strange. is a composer as well. I think you might be right in saying that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. I was like, because I always weird. remember I was in New York for the very first time the year that Wicked came out. Um, oh my God, that was so crazy. <laughs> Wicked previewed like for Halloween. So like it was uh-huh. like the next summer. So it'd almost been open a year. And um, I remember uh, Avenue Q won the Tony for Best Musical that year. Yes, and, it did. And all and, and I, I see. I love Avenue Q. I think it's very clever. I am a yep, very big Avenue agreed. Q. I don't think it's aged very well, but I think it was a good thing. But all the taxis had the poster for Avenue Q on the top, and it just said, "Did we mention we won the Tony?" <laughs> <laughs> like, and I just thought this was brilliant. I was like, "Poor Wicked!" Like they thought they were going to win. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. That's so funny. Um, yeah, the Hunchback not transferring is a funny one. And I think it came as quite of a shock mm. to a lot of people that it wasn't going to transfer because it was so well received and people thought it was absolutely brilliant. And there is lots of varying stories as to why it didn't um, transfer, some of which involve Disney passing, over, passing it over in favour of Frozen which, if it's true, I am unhappy about. <laughs> um, and also there was allegedly some kind of hoo-ha with the Actors' Union over paying of the choir. Ah. Uh, uh. To be fair, I do think it must be a very expensive show. And yeah. they probably don't want to pay the choir that much because actually they didn't do a huge amount, but yeah. there was a lot of them. Like, yeah. it yeah. must have cost... Uh, and perhaps why in Germany it works so well is because they have different union laws and maybe exactly. they don't have to pay them as much like yeah. um, to do it. So that story I could believe, but if it was passed over in favour of Frozen, I have lots of opinions on that. Also, Disney, you're not going to run out of money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Just put them both on. <laughs> exactly. 
It's not but like they're competing with each other. I don't think so the people that love Frozen would love Hunchback. I think it's two very different... Yeah, yeah very different very target different markets. Especially when they came out at different times as well. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, young kids now love Frozen because it's new and it's out there. I mean, I teach little kids in China that love Frozen. And I'm like, that's amazing that this is so popular yeah. around the world. And... Um, the, the, honestly, the, I think most people the only English they know is the word snowman. Like, but they are. <laughs> so weird. honestly, when I do a lesson where I'm teaching them snow, they're like snowman. I'm like, oh, okay, you know that word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that like people of our generation would be like, well, we go see Hunchback because mm, that was one absolutely. of our Disney films. Yeah. Like, like the same as Aladdin. Like, I didn't really yeah. like Aladdin on stage, but you know what I mean. Like, we, we, yeah, it, it was one of the films that we grew up with because it came out when we were young. Well, when exactly. I was young, exactly. And old. I mean, as much as it's associated with the Disney name, like Hunchback has some really deep lessons. Yeah, in it, really yeah. deep lessons. And also, I mean, I'm willing to say this, but I think Frollo is the scariest Disney villain. He's too real. Too real. Him, or, Absolutely. Yeah. Because Maleficent used to scare me the most, but she is not really real. Whereas yeah. you're like, you kind of look at Frollo and you're like, oh, modern day politician, yes. Yeah. yeah. He's a familiar exactly. face. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's what's scary. He's, he feel he's the most human of all Disney villains. And yeah. is, is people, he is a person that I'm sure all of us are very, very familiar with in, like, yeah. our, daily, in our daily lives. Yeah, and it definitely it does. I'm sorry. What life lessons does Frozen really teach you? <laughs> I mean, sisters are important. I'm sure there's. I mean, I agree with that, and I agree. It's all about like accepting who you are, and that's a really, really important message. But see, that's kind of a message that's in Hunchback as well, is it not? Yeah. About the appearances, to- like tolerance. Like tolerance yeah. is such because what's great about Hunchback is it's not just about tolerating. Quasimodo. Mm-hmm. It's about yeah. finding. Yeah. It, it's it's not even just about Esmeralda. I think it's also about seeing how a captain in the army can have this compassion. There's so many layers to so many people. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I mean, in the musical, it really goes into why Frollo is the way he is. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. almost like lust and and yeah. the 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 celibacy that he's vowed is almost is what mm-hmm. making him go crazy or his upbringing, how he was put in an orphanage and. And the church yeah. to come in, like it's that sort of stuff. Like, will we see why you're the way you are? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it, it's so much layers about just if we all tolerated each other, the world would be better, and yeah. Notre Dame wouldn't burn to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> like, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh god. The one thing I don't miss from the Disney movie is the strange kind of calypso number that the the. Statues do oh, the strange, yeah, yeah. like hmm. yes, very yeah. odd Car- Caribbean yeah. styley yeah. thing. Now, yeah, I can understand why Disney put that in the film because it was a kids' film, and yeah. I, I feel like the musical takes forward the idea of Quasimodo talking to the statues, but they just do it in a much more like convenient way and a more effective way, <laughs> rather than have them kind of like singing at him and yeah the gargoyles are a weird choice in the film they're also like they did it. played by quite famous people as well so you're like yeah, mm, yeah. is that why they yeah. have a film <laughs> jason alexander yeah. refused to let his son see the film he thought it was too dark really wow. yeah i was like show him, him, him across worse than that 
Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> also, I've just actually thought of a thing that I was meant to say back when we were talking about um, <laughs> The Wizard of Oz, actually. It was quite a while ago. Um, is <laughs> It kind of links into Avenue Q, which you've mentioned recently. So let's work let's with, that. with that. Um, Margaret Hamilton, who played uh, The Witch, the she yeah. did an episode of Sesame Street and it was apparently as the witch, and it was apparently so traumatizing. It has never been aired since. It was aired once, and it's <gasps> never been touched since because children were terrified of her. That is amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I probably would have been terrified of that. She. Terrified <laughs> yeah. Me. The poor, the poor woman also suffered terrible like burns, burns and things yeah. when filming *Wizard of Oz*. The film was a bit of a trauma. Asbestos, snow, bad times. It wasn't great when you look back at their filmmaking yeah. techniques. Next up, we have The Phantom of the Opera. So we are going to be finishing this episode with a bang, people. After this one, let me tell you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics by Charles Hart, and additional lyrics by Richard Stilgo. And the book is by Richard Stilgo and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Didn't know he wrote the book as well, but here we are. So this London premiere was on the 9th of October 1986 and its Broadway premiere 26th of January 1988. Its source material is The Phantom of the Opera written by Gaston LaRue. The story was originally serialised in a newspaper from September 1909 to January 1910 and the work was published as a full novel translated into English in 1911. Fun fact about... The source material, LaRue frames the story as though he is a reporter researching true events. He utilises real-life stories from the Opera Garnier in Paris, including the lake that does indeed exist underneath the theatre, and a counterweight falling from the chandelier in the auditorium, which actually did kill someone in the audience below. My God. Yeah, there you go. Everybody's a skill over to you, McLeish. So, The Phantom of the Opera is a story about a young chorus girl called Christine. She is a young, talented singer who, with the right training, could become world famous, much like myself. While rehearsing at the Opera Populaire, where weird and unexplainable things happen, she captures the attention of the Phantom, or as the Opera Populaire call him, the Opera Ghost. He is no ghost. He is a disfigured musical genius who has hidden away for years to avoid the cruel stares of strangers. With the Phantom's help, Christine becomes the venue's leading lady, Chavin Carlotta out the road. But tragedy awaits as the young soprano has fallen for the charms of the handsome, noble Viscount Raoul de Chaugny, not realising that her angel of music is deeply in love with her. Insane with jealousy and unable to see the object of his affection and ultimately is his obsession is in the arms of another man, the Phantom kidnaps Christine, unaware of the lengths that Raoul is prepared to go to get her back. Ooh. Lots more happens, that's but I don't want to give much that's away. That's, that, that is, that's a Very good. Thing there. Very good. Very good. Michael, I need to ask you a question. Yes. Are you going to be biased against this one? <laughs> Not necessarily. I, I worked front of house um, at this theatre and I, before I worked there, I loved Phantom. I was such a big fan. It was always my dream to be in Phantom. Um, and then when I worked there, I still appreciate a lot of it. 
but unfortunately a lot of things were highlighted from me watching it about 80 times because also when I worked at this theatre I only worked front of house I didn't work behind the bar and I worked there for four months so I saw it from different angles every single day and it was structured that we it was in three parts and you worked two of the parts and one part you had your break of the show Mm-hmm. So you would either see like the beginning and the end, the beginning and the middle, the middle and the end, or like yeah. <laughs> and um, I always hated the third part because it was pa- just before past the point of no return, and it was devastating. But it made me highlight so many problems with the show. Mm. Like the first thing that really bothers me, and I never understood why they've not changed this. Uh, after she sings "Think of Me" and she has her big moment. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, uh, Madame Giri <laughs> comes across the stage <laughs> and um, draws a curtain to cover mm-hmm. some to cover the dressing room so that the mm-hmm. the dressing room can move or or to bring the dress that's right sorry to bring the dressing room on. She pulls this curtain over right, and then the ballet dancers do a little like um, center center work like warm down whatever just to practice, and she does this at the side which is fine. But there's no music underscoring this scene and you can hear the entire set moving and the thing clicking into place like like the, the whole scene. And I've never understood why they didn't just put some music because nobody speaks. There's nothing. Nothing's been said. It's literally Madame Giray doing like some bar work with them and she's not speaking. And at first I was like, maybe it's just London. Maybe it's the set. No, no. I saw it in Hamburg. The, the original production... And you can still hear the set move. So this is a different piece of set that's been made on a different stage that still has this. So that's the first thing. Never understood why they did just put some scoring under that. 20 years in. The second thing is an act This is great. <laughs> is the, I call it the missing scene. Because everyone used to say to me, like, when you, when you hear it, you'll never unhear it. And I can't. I watched it in German and I still heard it. Oh, no. Um, there's a bit where they do the second note scene. Um, when mm-hmm. all the principals are singing about the second notes that they've received. Um, and <laughs> they come up with a plan that they're going to get Christine to, like, do what the Phantom wants. Um, to, like, trick him or whatever. Like, yeah. So they hatch a plan. And Christine says, like, I can't do it. And then Raoul comes over to her and sits down and says, like, please don't think that I don't care. But we, we, we are counting on you. You need to do this. And then there's a random bit of music where there's like ad-libbing in the background that you can't hear. And I've never understood that either. And then she stands up. The music stops. And she goes, no, I can't. Runs off the stage. And then the very next thing that happens is her doing the thing she just said she can't do. <laughs> yeah. So there's like a whole bit that's missing. Such a good point. <laughs> Where you're like, well, she just literally, like, it literally is that, and then it cuts to her singing. <laughs> the thing that she just said that she would do. And I'm like, why? What's missing? Like, why is there this missing scene? And I never, and it, honestly, every time I used to watch it, I'd just, like, roll my eyes and be like, oh my god, like, why? So, but apart from that, I still love the music. I, every single day of doing, because the latecomer's point is the chandelier going up. So you wait yeah. until it's past. You wait until it's past the level, and I still, still to this day, get chills when he says the electric light, boom, yeah. and it happens. I, yeah. I just got it there yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. about it. Like yeah. I think yeah. it is one of the most spectacular openings to a show. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I believe that is part of its major success. Yeah. I think it's on the flip side of Hunchback where you can't imagine Hunchback not having the Bells of Notre Dame and it yeah. being yeah. kind of a, a stripped back opening. But with Phantom, yeah. it works so, so well. It's, on, it's haunting. Haunting. Yeah. And in Vegas, the chandelier is in like loads of different pieces and it all comes together like That's in the Vegas so production, cool. which I think is really cool. Yeah. I was going to say the chandelier in the tour, the UK tour that we had, was incredible. And I kind of preferred the effects of the chandelier in the UK tour. Because obviously in the static production, or this was the case, we're coming back to a new phantom after COVID. But um, the chandelier... I on this. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, the chandelier would drop and then swing onto the stage and then there was those people on the stage ready to kind of catch it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Although acting as if they weren't there to catch it. Uh, whereas in the tour, they literally, it may not have been the same in every venue, but at least in Edinburgh Playhouse, the chandelier dropped several feet. Um, and so anybody in the dress circle or above would see this chandelier looking like it was going to drop right on top of the stalls. And then the people That's in the stalls so would see this coming down from above them and it would just stop kind of above them. And it was, I feel like that was so much more effective than the threat of it falling slightly and then swinging onto stage where people are ready to catch it it doesn't work as well for me but the tour was yeah. incredible exceptional there's so much about the tour that i thought was much better than the static production i never got to see the tour and i'd heard that it was amazing um and i was really shocked when hamburg were remounting it that they were offered the new version and they said right. no we want the original and i just think that's Egypt. so bizarre because <laughs> It's the same sh- show. It's just yeah. a, a more... Yeah. And I don't even think it needs, needs to say better staging. It's a more modern staging. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a more modern set. It's a more... I, and I was very confused why they did it. Um, very yeah. confused. I think I think the original production quote um, is, is so... It just, it, beca- it just became part of kind of like just common... I think a lot of people who weren't even into musical theatre when it even now knows what Phantom is. And yeah. they know they know those images that they still take photos of and are outside Her Majesty's every single year, every single cast change, because they're just they're just total phantom isms now. Mm. You just know the yeah. look of it. Um yeah. Can and, I tell you about the time that the women came in dressed in the Matador costume? Did, no. I, did I tell you this? <laughs> So, you know how at the beginning of Act 2, when he's got the skull and he's got the yeah. matador, like, red wow. thing on? She had made her own version and came in to the, the auditorium, like, the, the foyer and walked around, looking like she was God's gift to the world. And all I could think was, you sad little woman. Like, what have you done? <laughs> and all I could think was, I hope you're not on my level, because I'm going to have to tell you to take that hat off, because it was like, <laughs> like Big she wasn't points. on my level. But oh, I just remember wow. being like, really? Like... Really? But she was so proud. Sorry, Hannah. I just... When you were saying about the the, the people that came to see it and loved it so much. No, it's so true. But that kind of leads on to my point because Maria Bjornsson, who was the designer of Phantom, was an absolute genius. I just want to say a little bit of love to Maria Bjornsson because the original production, I know it has its faults and I know... There's a lot about what's going to happen to that, which I'm sure we will get to uh, towards the end of this section. But um, it's effectively a black box, the original production. is how it's designed. But it's 
its opulence is in the small amount of set it does have and the costumes, particularly in the costumes, because those costumes are just totally reminiscent of Victorian opera costumes, which she would know a lot about, because for those of you that don't know, Maria Bjornsson was actually a prolific opera and ballet designer. She was like bigwigs in that world. So she would have totally understood the aesthetic that Hal Prince was looking for in his designer. Because um, she was working with like top opera houses around the world. So she, un- I think she understood the opulence and understood the general kind of like gothic feel of the show because the show is really dark it's really shadowy um excuse me oh my god i've had a lot of chocolate tonight um it's really (laughs) shadowy it uses it just it oh it's just it's so it's so it's so good and and it's not it's not really romantic in the sense that like even even the one romantic bit between raul and christine Mm-hmm. Is is then overshadowed by the fact that actually he's been watching them the entire time, yeah, 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 and they've not had this intimate moment of love that they think they've had. They've actually had someone is plotting, like to yeah. to destroy what they have there in order to get what mm-hmm. he wants and needs, and uh, it really is just like a. I have two things. One links into yours. So the tour, this may have just been how I interpreted the Raoul's interpretation, but I felt when I saw the tour, which was before I saw it in London, I think, but I had seen the film literally millions of times and then I saw the 25th anniversary tour a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Raoul played it very cold as if he wasn't, as if he was showing interest in Christine purely for show. Like it wasn't, oh. he was, he maybe did love her, I don't know, but the interpretation felt so incredibly cold. And when she's getting kind of melodramatic and standing at the edge of the stage as if she's hinting at the fact she might jump off, off the building because of all the things that are going on, he doesn't really care. And then throughout All I Ask of You, it's almost as if he's been like, um, He's thinking, what is it that you say to somebody in a situation where you fancy them? Uh, oh, I mean, the, and then he makes all these promises through the song. And mm-hmm. it's almost as if he's calculating, like, what is it I need to say now to this woman that I'm supposed to show that I love? It's felt very calculated and very oh, cold. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Really, take. really, really interesting. And then on the flip side, when you then have the Phantom who's obsessive about Christine and so clearly loves her really, really deeply, it made you almost root for the Phantom more than Raoul. And it was a really mm-hmm. strange... The whole telling of the show then made it feel like you didn't know whose side to be on. You're like, am I on the side of the villain who's killing people? Or am I on the side of the person who is not killing any people and causing no harm, but might actually not love Christine as much as he says he is? Mm-hmm. It was really, really, I mean, really I- cool. That's really interesting. But that ties in so much more into the sequel of what Raoul becomes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And is that, because I've never read the book, I don't know anything about the book, is Raoul in the novel? He is in the novel. So since you brought the source material up, <laughs> thank you for that leading question there. <laughs> so is it faithful to the source material? Well, yes and no. So as I said before, the story was serialized and it is 
Leroux was a reporter. That's what he started out as. So you read the first, like, the introduction to the novel is him, him, quote, the narrator, him as the narrator, saying that this is a real story and this really happened and I'm going to tell you about it. And this is, I have found this from the writings of Christine Dye and from the um, the story told to me about characters that were cut from the musical. But he's, he, lays, <laughs> <laughs> he lays it out like it was, that this is like factual events that he is reporting on. Um, so... There are, uh, there are a lot of characters that are missing or are omitted altogether in the novel um, or they kind of have combined a few of them um, in the musical. The big one being Madame Giri, actually. Oh. In, the, in the book, she's actually only the box keeper of box five, which is the Phantom's box, for anyone that doesn't know. Um, it's always left empty in every theatre that it's in, oh, if there's yeah, a box. Yeah, and also... It has a plaque on it at the real Opera Garnier because yes, I am that human that has seen Phantom eight times and has been to visit the Opera Garnier. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> um, anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, so she's actually really low down on the pecking order in the terms of the hierarchy of the characters in the novel. Um, and she's effectively not bothered by the Phantom because she does what she's told. In the musical, though, she takes on the qualities of an individual that is only known... And this is a very un-PC term, but it was the 1900s, people. But a character only known as the Persian. Okay. Um, and he's this mysterious individual who seems to know a lot about the Phantom's origins and his er- earlier life. And he actually aids Raoul in his descent to the underground lair at the end of the plot to rescue Christine. And he's also revealed to have been a good friend of the Phantom's prior to the events of the novel. So in the so in the musical, what we call final layer, which is like the last scene, when everything comes to the head, that actually takes place across like four chapters. And what they suffer in the book is way, 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 way more <laughs> than what they suffer in the musical. Um, the stakes are much higher in the novel in terms of, because I think the, I think when it comes to the Team Ral, Team Phantom thing, is that I think a, I think a lot of the material sways to try and get the audience to be on like the Phantom side. When actually, if you read the book, friggin' hell, poor Raoul deserves Christine after what the hell he goes through. <laughs> <laughs> the end well, of in, the novel. In the movie, they have a bit where Raoul plummets into a little pool of water and gets yeah, stuck. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of taken from the novel. So there's like they have to like avoid all these traps they end up in a thing called the torture chamber which is in the phantom's lair in the novel which is a mirrored room that's heated up so they start hallucinating and there's a tree with a noose on it so he tries to get his victims to effectively commit suicide the phantom threatens to blow up the opera house if christine doesn't marry him honestly which (laughs) makes more crazy which makes more sense (laughs) i feel like there there should be more of that in the stage show because Madame Giri literally refers to the Phantom as a genius and an inventor. Absolutely. Mm. But there's very little inventing goes <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> you, see you see the little monkey? That. The monkey music box? That's about <laughs> it. That's that about plays it. a big role. <laughs> you can buy um, that at the gift shop for £200. <laughs> what a bargain. Wow. That's a lot of money, is that? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of adapting the Phantom's character, it is way different 
in the musicals and what it is in the novel. In the novel, he is your classic gothic horror villain that you struggle to pity for majority mm. of the book. There's also the big thing about his disfigurement. So in the musical, he's only half of his face is disfigured and he wears a half mask, which I believe was an artistic choice due to the actor complaining that, or the, the worrying that a lot of his expression was going to get lost behind a full, near, a near full face mask. Fair enough. In the book, however, <laughs> his face and head is entirely disfigured. It's often referred to as a, quote, death's head meaning that he re resembles a skeleton or a decomposing body. Um, his eyes are sunken in, he is missing his nose, he's got exceptionally thin lips, and his personality is also way more erratic and amoral than his musical counterpart. And it's totally in line with, like, your Dracula's, your Frankenstein's creature, your Jekyll and Hyde. He is the literal monster hiding in the basement in, this no in the novel. Um... So he's definitely been, like, sort of romanticised up, shall we say, <laughs> when it comes to the fair show, well, which is fair enough. I feel enough. like the whole purpose of him in the, the musical is supposed to be, like, anyone can feel love. Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. anyone can love, even someone that's been taken away from society for years can mm -hmm. still fall in love. But actually, it sounds like in the, the novel, he's not got love, he's obsessed. Yeah, yeah it is, like, full, obs like, obsessive. He is, like on the last thread of his sanity, <laughs> um, which makes for a really interesting read. And it's a really, really different story mm. um, to the musical. And I mean, I was that kid that got the book when I was like 11 because I was obsessed with the show and read it multiple times. So much so I had to buy myself a new copy of it. I am that child. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's me with Hocus Pocus. There and we the go. Video, <laughs> video set. Um, it's just it's just a really good book, but it is very very interesting when you see what it's come from and what it's become in like the public consciousness. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that there, your mention of the quote Persian character being a mm -hmm. friend of the Phantom. It's almost yeah. as if they did the musical, and then when they made the film, they kind of wanted to make a little bit of reference to the source material. Because Madame Giri rescues the Phantom from essentially a freak yeah. show in the film, yeah. which seems like kind of like that she doesn't let on in the stage show that she's as involved with the Phantom. Yeah, definitely. She I think yeah, she's, only, she's, got, she's got a tiny little scene as they're going down yeah. to the lair yeah. where she like kind of half sings, half speaks this thing about what he was and where she found him, and yeah. then that's yeah. it. Yeah. There's a teeny, uh, yeah, there's a teeny, teeny, tiny little hint, but I think it's more so. And also I think it comes back to adapting a musical for film. You have to fill in the gaps. Otherwise your audience yeah. is going to get really annoyed. Because <laughs> <laughs> they need to be told everything. Of course they do. But um, I personally think the score is one of Angela Weber's best. I know there I are arguments that some of it is plagiarised, but hey-ho. Isn't, isn't everything effectively plagiarised at the end of the day? But I, I think it is um, some of his absolute best, best work. And it's very much that that album that I listened to when I was a teenager and it like got under my skin and it never friggin' left. So here yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah, I've loved it for a very long time myself. It was one of the first things I taught myself on piano. It was oh, the title track. And 
that and most of Delta Goodrum's work because obviously she, she was the reason I learned how to play piano because um, I was a massive Delta Goodrum fan. Um, and also my sixth year musical composition was a... I did a string quartet arrangement of the title track. Um, and so I've been obsessed with it for a very, very long time as well. One thing I didn't know, which I have written down here, um, about the music is that Angelo Webber went through a couple of lyricists before he eventually settled on the guy he worked with. And it included mm-hmm. um, Alan J. Lerner, who wrote oh, uh-huh. for My Fair Lady Camelot Brigadoon. And he contributed a bit, but then became very, very ill with lung cancer and died while the show was still being written. But Masquerade oh. is one of the things that he left behind in the show. Masquerade oh, was one of his really biggest like... contributions. And it is one of the, like, lyrically, it's an excellent song. I really enjoy it. It's a um, very good song. But there's also two other musicals of Phantom of the Opera, which I oh, have I to go and investigate. One. What's the second one? I know the Maury Eston one. So the Maury, Rest, Maury Eston one called Phantom from 1991. And then there's the 1976 Ken Hill musical, which is called Phantom of the Opera. And it is the show that inspired Angela Lloyd Webber to write his own version. There you go. Perhaps oh, is that where some of the plagiarism accusations come from? <laughs> no, you're telling the truth. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, plagiarism, like, did Angela Webber plagiarise Ken Hill? No, 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 no. Apparently, the Ken Hill musical used actual opera. And apparently oh. used To Catch and Fugue in D minor. <laughs> I mean, it's I my fave. It's my fave. <laughs> dun, dun, um. that, that's in all horror things. Well, funnily enough, the journey to the graveyard has a Takata and Fugue-esque vibe. Or whatever it is. That is very Takata and Fugue. It is. It definitely sets the scene. Wild. <laughs> um, that leads me quite nicely into asking you guys if you have a favourite lyric from Phantom. Oh, God. Um, and I ask this, I will give you mine because it's relevant to the gra- journey to the graveyard. Um, okay. I thoroughly enjoy... The line, passing bells and sculpted, sculpted angels, cold and monumental, seem for you the wrong companions, you were warm and gentle. Because, A, there's very little is spoken about in terms of Christine's dad, apart from in wishing you were somehow here again. She doesn't, he gets a few mentions, but nothing in depth. Um, but it really sets up why she may, A, why she may have clung to the Phantom thinking that she was her dad for a while yeah. in angel form that because she had such a close warm gentle relationship with her father she would cling on to the phantom for that and it kind of it justifies almost why she allowed everything to happen with the phantom that happened because how often is it someone pops out your mirror and is like come down for a wee singing lesson it doesn't happen very often but she was willing because she thought it was her dad mm. um but also i think it's just as a angsty kind of 13, 14 year old, um, it was just a line that I really enjoyed because I was also obsessed with graveyards. So it was nice. <laughs> it was nice. I enjoyed the imagery. Uh, and I also really enjoy um, after Christine returns, after Raoul and her run off from the final lair scene, and she comes back mm-hmm. and Phantom says, Christine, I love you. Because again, yeah. it's the humanity bubbling to the surface. And. Yeah. All he wanted was to be loved, and that's literally it. And it's the it's the time where he admits the love, where he isn't being aggressive, he isn't being 
manipulative. It's literally him just saying, Christine, I love you. And it's when it's done well, it's so good. It gives me chills. Yeah. So those are my what two I love about, my two What I love about that bit in the show, as someone who has not seen it as many times as um, Michael, but has seen it enough <laughs> as a paying patron, um, is that usually by that time, if the cast has done their job right, you'll hear lots of coughing and lots of sniffing yes. <laughs> in the audience. Absolutely. And then you know they've done a good show. Yeah. Uh, I just actually, to, to, to further add to what you your favourite line is, Chris, I think a very powerful moment is when she sings, Why Can't the Past Just Die? Because yeah. the past that she's talking about is the connection she had with her father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, that's like, she's so, she's so messed up in her head because of what's happening and this, the, all, all the drama that's happening. Because bear in mind, she's a 16 year old ballet girl. Yeah. Um, and, and she's been thrust into this moment. The fact that she's just like, why can't the past just die? Is, yeah. I think, really like, yeah. oh my God. And, and technically he can hear her say this. Yeah. Technically, because yeah. he's hiding behind the, the grave. I know. I was going to be controversial and go for an act one lyric since you're talking about Ooh. act two. Okay. <laughs> you go for act one. It's another Christine lyric, unfortunately. Unfortunately. I mean, she's got, she does most of the friggin' work in this show, let's be she honest does. here. She and does. I would argue she should get last bow at the show. Well, I have a little fun fact just about that. <gasps> I got told this when I worked at Phantom, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like this. The Phantom is only on the stage for about 30 minutes of the show. Oh, I could easily believe that. Because yeah. so much is pre-recorded as well. Like, all yeah. the... Yeah. I'm here! I'm here! Yeah, like, yeah. all that sort of stuff. <laughs> like, And it used to, like, reverb around the theatre, like, the, the way the sound yeah. does. It's, like, round. Um, but he's only on stage for about something like 30 minutes. And then some of that is the clicked stuff of Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. So yeah. he doesn't really have a hard job. So it used to really annoy me when the guy that played Phantom was constantly off. <laughs> constantly yeah. off and i was like why are you off you don't have to do much christine has uh christine she's like singing her heart out yeah. even Raul. i mean really christine and carlotta have and maybe pianji oh, yeah. but he doesn't do much yeah. but they've got yeah. like those Raul and phantom are like whatever <laughs> like, yeah. yeah um your act yeah, one sorry lyric. sorry no, you're your act one lyric about, sorry yeah um so mine's is at the start of the rip top scene when just before all I ask of you and Christine and Ralph have got this little kind of thing where she's trying to tell him about what happened with the phantom and he's like you're talking crap you're clearly crazy because he's that guy um and there's a line that she has where she says uh, and through music my soul began to soar and I heard like I'd never heard before oh. which is a set to the most beautiful tune yeah ever but also one, th- one of the thing about the Phantom score, right, and it's only when you really, really listen to it, it's effectively like 12 melodies that are effectively just used repeatedly mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing. And I feel like it's one of the first times where we hear Christine singing the Phantom's music, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. I believe the melody is taken from Music of the Night. Yeah. And I just think that's such a beautiful poetic lyric. Big up, yeah. Charles Hart. Because I think that was his work, that one. Um, it's just such a beautiful moment. And like it feels like, because the start of that scene is chaotic. Like we've just had someone being hanged and then it's all very crazy. And it's the first time where you just kind of have like this almost like this breath 
And it's just... And then she goes, she does go on to say something else, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And in his eyes, all the sadness of the world, those pleading eyes that both threatened and adored. Oh, so friggin' good. And it actually makes me think of a quote from the book that's very, very similar that I think is said by, like, LaRue as, like, the narrator. And it was about the Phantom. He had a heart that could have held the empire of the world. And in the end, he had to content himself with a cellar. Oh. Isn't that a lovely I, quote? Hannah, you're really selling the book. I'm like, yep. Honest you didn't to God. Really, you didn't really sell Hunchback because I don't really want to read 90% <laughs> description of a church. But <laughs> I'm really, I'm like, ooh. I'm like, yeah. get me it's some honestly, it's really, It's really good. And also, I feel like that line about the Phantom's Eyes, a bit weird, but... It, it humanizes him. Yeah. And it's it also shows that she has seen him as more than a monster. Yeah. She's seen him as a person. Mm-hmm. Like by yeah. looking in his eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's oh, it's just so good. And it makes me want to see it again. Which gets me on to a little <laughs> point I wanted to bring up. Just this week, a story has broken about the original production in London. Now, we all knew during COVID that something funny was going on with the show and that there were rumours that it was closing for good. What it seems to mean, though, was that they were taking out the old set because it was falling apart. Because it was falling apart. Mm-hmm. It was. And re- I can get apart. <laughs> we're going to replace it with a new one. But the story has broken this week is that when it reopens in the West End... The orchestra is going to be cut in half. Thoughts and feelings on this one, friends? Um, we probably saw the orchestra more because we had to walk through the their changing room ah. to get to certain parts of the building. Um, and it was always just timed really well that we never... It was never like we imposed in their time. Like, they mm-hmm. always... I think they had another room, but they could also use this room. Anyway, um, they were lovely people. And when I had started, which I mean, it was about seven, eight years ago, they um, had already reduced the orchestra a little bit from ah. what it was originally. Um, they, like, mixed a lot of, like, the synth and the piano was all together. Like, they did a mm-hmm. lot of this sort of stuff. Um, and there were some lovely elderly people that had worked there since the very beginning <gasps> that I imagine oh are God. still there. Um, also, side note, there was a man that worked in the bar that had worked there since the first preview of Phantom in that bar. <gasps> yeah. That's crazy. His name was Michael and I had so many fears <laughs> that that was going to be me when I was older. <laughs> yeah. He, he, worked, he worked in the bar. He didn't, ha- he didn't wow. have to watch the show anymore, obviously, but he yeah. said he remembers watching the, pre- the preview going, well, this is shit, it's never going to last. <gasps> That's yeah. crazy. Oh mm. my God. Yeah. It said, oh, it was for safety, safety requirements. And I was like, mm. It's cuts. That pit was massive. Yeah. Also, literally anyone who looks at that goes, that's your cost cutting. That's you trying to produce a show for less money and that's, a bigger profit. That's made millions. Absolutely. Like, They've made their fortunes. Made, like, they don't need... Can I tell you that Phantom so far has made six billion pounds? That's insane. And it's, just, it's ridiculous. Like, ridiculous. Which is and more the... than oh. Avatar, Titanic, E.T. and Star Wars. 
That is crazy. Oh my God. So it just absolutely baffles me. The, the Phantom had the largest orchestra in the West End for years and years. And I always thought that that must be such a good, an amazing claim for Android Weber to have. Mm-hmm. Such Especially an Especially with, with what his brother does for a living. Absolutely. And like, <laughs> Absolutely. you should want to support musicians. <laughs> yeah. But the fact, all the statements that came out, and I'm sorry, I'm blaming Cameron McIntosh for this one. Because um, all the statements that came out of his office last year when there was lots of like rumblings about what was happening with the show, all of it was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's the yeah. only yeah. way I can describe it. It was really weird and it was really dancey about it. And it was it almost was... as if they were like, oh, we've got caught with someone taking a picture, but we thought no one would take a picture. And yeah. It's like, well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's central London. <laughs> like... It just really annoys me because that show needs a big orchestra. Totally. It needs. I, I read, a, I can't remember if it was a tweet or something stupid like online, but someone said it's called Phantom of the Opera, not Phantom of the Pit Band. Yes. And I was like, you have absolutely summed it up in one, is that we don't want, you don't want a 14-piece orchestra, which is still big-ish. That's like your average size. A 14-piece orchestra and then a click track somewhere mm-hmm. in the background yeah. for the brass section. Yeah. It's just rubbish. And it really angers me because it comes back into, this is commercialism over artistic integrity. And yeah. it irritates the hell out of me. It makes me so angry because why would you sacrifice the artistic integrity of your show just mm-hmm. so you can make more money when you've already made your millions off the thing? Yeah. Because Billions. you're going to detract from what makes the show the show and has yeah. kept it running for 30 plus years. Yeah. It just yeah. angers me so much. It really annoys me. It's shady business. Uh, talking about like how big the opening is when yeah. he shoves the plug in and then the chandelier lights up. Yeah. That's, it won't be half as effective if you've got yeah. a wee hi-fi play in it and not a full-blown <laughs> orchestra. Yeah. It's stupid. Uh, yes, it needed a little bit of a zhuzh up, but... I mean, Stop, I give a zhuzh up. A heck of a shoes up, but... I even thought I 10 just, years ago when I saw the show, it looked filthy. And you know how I feel did. about filth. That's very true. <laughs> Not a fan. Sorry. Anyway. On a slightly different note, I have two instances of onstage mishaps that I thought were quite <gasps> entertaining. Oh, um, yes. So, the first one. We all know that there's a boat. Um, Indeed. So... This boat comes in, obviously, during the title track, and it's remote-controlled. It's remote control, uh, controlled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's remote-controlled. Controlled. controlled. <laughs> there, were, there have been many occasions where the boat just stops. and It happens quite a lot. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> and I've been told that, that generally the phantoms are told, just get out the boat, take Christine by the hand, and lead her the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Well, Colm Wilkinson from Jean Valjean fame, decided that that wasn't what he was going to do. The boat broke down very far back and he thought, the boat's barely been on. So he picked up the boat with Christine inside and dragged it the rest of the way whilst going... Wow. 
Da, 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 da. Lifting a big boat. <laughs> uh, so that's Colm Wilkinson for you. He uh, wow. refuses to let the boat sink. He should have maybe been on the Titanic. Uh, and then <laughs> the other story takes us to Las Vegas, to the production in Las Vegas, which at one point had Sierra Bogus, who is my favourite Christine, and I believe Andrew Lloyd Webber's favourite Christine. Wow. Yes. Bit of a, sorry, but that's a bit of a kick in the teeth to Sarah Brightman, is it not? Massive kick in the teeth. <laughs> but even bigger kick in the teeth to Angela Lloyd Webber's wife when at the 25th anniversary thank you speech after the show, thanks Sierra, Bo- it, thanks Sarah Brightman and doesn't mention his wife, who is sitting in the oh, audience. Oh, that's awkward. Yep. Anyway, sorry. So in episode seven of Die Days, which is a Broadway.com uh, vlog, uh, uh, Sierra Bogus speaks to other Christines and it's called um, Club Christine and she tells the story of when she was in Las Vegas there were many 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 more candles for the final layer and so all the candles obviously rise up through trap doors and so there were plenty of candelabra traps all over the stage one week into the run all of the traps had gone down for the final layer and not just the select few for that scene every single trap had been Mm -hmm. lowered by mistake and as she was going on stage one of the stage hands whispered to her look out for holes now she's walking on to on stage with her phantom with smoke covering the stage and holes everywhere so she falls immediately into a trap in the stage and her face bangs off the floor she says that she's convinced her dress which is massive like the big white wedding dress saved her life because she didn't fall straight down the hole she she hit her face but the dress kind of stopped her from falling through it and her two front teeth popped right off (gasps) and she believed that the show wouldn't stop so she thought i need to power through so she went on and she was like have you gorged yourself at last for your love for blood and uh, sang the beginning of it with a lisp and eventually someone came on and was like no 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 we have to stop the show we have to stop the show so that is the story of sierra bogus knocking her two front teeth out and i believe when she was in love never dies there was also an instance of her knocking herself out on stage and having to go off so sierra bogus is quite clumsy <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, so that is two little mishaps. There were other mishaps mentioned in, Di- in the Diary days where Christine's would trip up on their dress during All I Ask of You um, and the dress oh would flip God. over their heads because of the massive hoop. So they'd then be, they'd be um, pants to the world. Um, so yeah, that's oh, the that's two crazy. stories that I found. There's also, just because I enjoyed the bad reviews... Um, there was one bad review I found for Phantom that I enjoyed, which wow. is, quote, the only areas in which Phantom of the Opera were deficient are the book, music and lyrics. So just the whole show. Well. Just the whole show. <laughs> well then. Yeah. Um, so there you wow. are. I also had one last thing that I was going to ask when we were talking about the costumes. Do you have yes. a favourite costume from the show? Oh, a favourite what, sorry? Costume. Favourite costume? That's such a hard question. Now, once again, I have my answers prepared. Go so for it. So, whilst Go. you think, I have two. <laughs> so, I, I really enjoy this slightly anachronistic masquerade costume for Christine with the silver go-go mm-hmm. boots. I kind of enjoy yeah. that she's wearing a costume that shouldn't exist in, uh, <laughs> in that time period. 
but also the fact that the whole costume is kind of spacey. She kind of looks like a, like she's in space. She's got the kind of the shiny pink skirt and the and the silver boots. Yeah. Love it. So big fan of that costume. But I also really enjoy a cloak, as you know. Yes, so I really, indeed. really, really enjoy the kind of minty green cloak from All I Ask of You. Yeah, and the I red think lining in the inside. Yeah. The red lining in the inside. And I think the slight clash against the pink of her dress in that scene. Mm-hmm kind of works for me and I as a person who's not a big fan of green I'm a big fan of that ensemble yeah there is someone in masquerade which actually loads of people don't even notice um the the boy that plays the the dancer the ballet dancer yeah but like some productions they have like there's two boy dancers and one does one track and one does the other and then there's some where he does them all so it just depends like which production it is, um, but he is dressed in like a half woman, half man. Yeah, that's um, cool. and yes. he like, and I always thought that was really clever because with the choreography, um, as well, that's I always cool. thought that was really cool. Um, and I, I think the matador costume is incredible. Yeah, like, it is. It yeah. is incredible. Yeah, um, the skull it's not, is cool. It's not him in it. It's not the Phantom. It's not the guy that plays the Phantom. What a scandal. <laughs> because he has to go down the... Because he goes down the trap door and then he appears somewhere else and that's the guy that plays Phantom. That's crazy. My yeah. entire life has been a lie. Have I got that right? Or is it the other way around? Is it someone that comes in? But I'm pretty sure it's not him. I'm pretty sure it's not him. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, cool, 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 cool. I think I'm going to be like a basic human here and probably just say the blue dress that Christine has. It is stunning. It's, it's I, so beautiful. It's probably the most somber dress that she has out of all the things that she wears. Yeah. Which makes sense and because I, she's at the graveyard. I remember reading it, I don't know where I read it or heard it or whatever, but actually it's the only instance in the show where Christine wears her own clothes. Because she's Excellent always constantly point. in costumes or other clothes that people give her. I like to think that when she's dressed in the the costume for Point of No Return, that that is her own clothes. <laughs> I like to think she's a little, I like to think she's a wee bit, a wee bit, do you know what I mean? That's fair. I, see, I like to be that. honest though, I think I'd probably wear all of Christine's clothes on a daily basis if I could get away with that. Because you're, who doesn't want that, who doesn't want that aesthetic in their life? Just you're saying. not alone. I Thank would you. also wear all of Thank Christine's you. clothes at all times. <laughs> and I think it just goes to show once again that male fashion throughout history is always worse than female clothes. I just think that's fair. Women's fashion is far superior, and the sooner that clothes completely drop their gender, the happier the world will become. The the Phantom does get a cloak though, so at least he he's got that going on. He does. Yes, he, he does get. Yeah. He gets the opportunity <laughs> yeah, does, to yeah, swish it as well. Yeah. That was a lot of Phantom chat. I wasn't expecting was. as much as that, but um. I was because I had two pages of notes for Phantom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how many do you have for the next one? <laughs> to be honest, I mean, I don't have much apart from just complaints. Lastly, we have the Adams Family. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Music and lyrics by Andrew Lippa, book by Marshall Brickman and Rick Elise. This first Chicago tryout was on the 9th of December 2009. Its Broadway premiere was the 8th of April 2010 and its UK tour premiere the 20th of April 2017. 
Its source material is the Adams Family comic strip created by Charles Adams. It was originally published in 1938. Didn't realise it was as old as that. Neither did I. I thought it was like a 50s thing. No. (laughs) Um, And it first appeared in The New Yorker. A fun fact about the source material, The Adams Family was originally written as a satire on the concept of the, quote, ideal American family of the 20th century. The Adamses are odd and interested in the dark and macabre, entirely unaware that the normal, quote unquote, people around them find their behaviour utterly bizarre. So the Adams Family... In the kooky, upside-down world of the Adams Family, to be sad is to be happy and to feel pain is to feel joy. And death and suffering are the stuff of dreams. Nonetheless, (laughs) this quirky family still has to deal with many of the same challenges faced by any other family. And the spookiest nightmare faced by every family creates the focus of Lipa, Brickman and Elise's musical, The Adams Family Kids Growing Up. The Adamses have lived by their unique values for hundreds of years and Gomez and Morticia, the patriarch and matriarch of the clan, would be only too happy to continue living that way. Their dark, macabre, beloved daughter Wednesday, however, is now an 18-year-old young woman who is ready for a life of her own. She's fallen in love with Lucas Benecki, a sweet, smart, annoying boy from a normal, respectable (laughs) Ohio family. The most un-Adam-sounding person one could be. And to make matters worse, she has invited the Benicatuses to their home for dinner. In one fateful, hilarious, says this synopsis, I don't say that, uh, night, secrets are disclosed, relationships are tested, and the Adams family must face up to the one horrible thing they've managed to avoid for generations. Change. Hmm. I don't even like the synopsis. Like the synopsis <laughs> annoys me. It just sounds like bad. oh, it's just such. It it might as well say um, it's not actually like the Adams family. Like yeah, it might as well yeah. just say that. Okay, yeah. so two th- two things here. <laughs> A, we might be slightly biased against this musical, not because only the three of us don't really like it, but B, we were all working at the theatre when the UK tour was going about. Mm. And it's fair to say that, personally, it's one of the most chaotic and stressful weeks of work I have ever experienced because every single evening show was sold out. We'd just had a sold out tour of Hairspray the week before. We were knackered. It was crazy. They also surprised us with show-specific cocktails. Oh, that as well. Which is that never well. ever a good thing. That, yeah. that was also, a panic. I always think that just encourages people to drink, which I really hate. <laughs> That's fair. <clears throat> um, so yeah. it was a slightly stressful week, and we saw that show a lot, a lot. So I was yeah. going to say, though, as we kick off, anyone have any positives to say first? <laughs> I mean, the only positive I had was I actually quite like Andrew Lippa's music usually. Um, okay, I, that, I'm that was my positive as well <laughs> I think though the problem with his music um, And him writing something like The Adams Family Is that his music is too like cartoony It's very bouncy It's very, mm-hmm. even when it's serious It's still quite, I don't know There's just something, it's not odd His music's not odd yeah. or quirky in any way 
And mm-hmm. I think from the beginning, like I, I read that when they did the Chicago tryouts, um, it was a completely different opening song that yeah. didn't work. So they had to change it. And I was like, well, you changed it to something that also didn't work. Like, um, it's them literally singing an upbeat, bouncy song when you want them all to be like somber. And I'm like, well, what? how'd you do this? Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. think a really big problem is that they didn't get the theme, like the yeah. Adams Family theme. If they had just paid for that, the beginning wouldn't have seemed so off to a losing battle. Like yeah. I think what that sings to me as when I, cause I went to see the show before it came to our theater. Um, don't know why. And, um, <laughs> I think what that said to me that the opening song wasn't the rookie and the spooky, because the fact it wasn't that just made me think they haven't had permission to put this show together. <laughs> that's what it sounded. Yeah. That's what it gave me yeah. the impression of. And so yeah. I automatically was like, oh, this show's not going to be what I want it to be because we're already on to a losing battle. Speaking of Lippa's writing, I do enjoy that he has actually, he's written music that is specific to the characters. So yes. he's mm-hmm. trying yep, to design yep, yep. music that suits. So Gomez has very flamenco, Spanishy mm-hmm. feeling music. Yep. Wednesdays is very contemporary and it is very contemporary. It's just exactly what you expect from a contemporary musical these days. Fester yep. is very vaudevillian, although I actually find mm-hmm. Fester a really dislikable character throughout the show. Um, I have notes on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Happy, Happy Sad is a song that Gomez sings, and it's a song that has been compared to a Sondheim ballad. So, uh, Happy Sad is, I would say, the best song in the show. It's a beautiful song. But it's kind of just sorry grateful. It is. It is. But I mean, out of everything else, it's definitely the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah. There's there there's some music that I don't dislike. The music I just dislike it in the context of the story. Absolutely. Like, I actually quite like One Normal Night. I think it's a, a yeah. like a really contemporary. But I feel like it should be in Mean Girls, not in yeah. The Adams Family. Yeah. <laughs> Or if it was just Lucas's family that were singing it, then maybe I'd kind of be like, okay. But yeah. no, you've got the you've got the Adamses singing this contemporary like pop song. Yeah. It's like it, Wednesday's not Ariana Grande. Yeah. But they're they're singing a contemporary pop song about one normal night, which is them acknowledging that they are not normal, which to themselves yeah, they are. Friggin' lutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's my my yeah, biggest just... grievance with the whole show is it forgets who the Adamses are. Yep. Like, I at just... their core. It's oh. almost as if they thought we have to make them like this so that people will like them without realising that actually people love the Adams Family because they are odd. Yeah. Like, people yeah. love Christina Ritchie because of the Adams Family. 100%. Like, that made Absolutely. her what she is. It's probably how a lot of people knew who... Um, Oh my god, that's terrible! That Angelica Houston. I can't believe I forgot her name. It's probably how a lot of people of a different generation knew who Angelica Houston was. Yeah, totally. Like our parents' generation knew so her true. as the supermodel, whereas we know yeah. her as Morticia Adams and yeah, and like the, the Grand, Grand High, High Witch. Witch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't forget yeah. that. I saw this show a lot because at the time I was on front of house a lot because um, I had only been in the job for about a year. Uh, so I, I did have a lot of time to, to kind of like dissect this show. And one of the things that never actually occurred to me until I started doing notes for this, right? So the musical ages up Wednesday, so she's 18 years old. So she has this thing with Lucas, right? 
Why does nobody else seem to age in this show? <laughs> it's a very good point. Especially yeah, the because the grandmother should be dead. <laughs> but also, it means that Pugsley should be like 15. Yeah, that's my point. Like, in the, in the original comics, Pugsley and Wednesday are like young-ish children, but they mm. are depicted as being the same-ish age, roughly the same age. So why is Pugsley still this child that's walking about with a stuffed dinosaur? And in the Broadway show, was played by a literal child. Okay, it was an adult playing a child in the UK production. But I was just like, nobody else seems to have aged. Even yeah, though all these yeah. years are supposed to have passed. The and then thing, there's the other thing. Sorry, on you go. I was just going to say that also extends to the development of their kind of fashion. The only person who isn't wearing the iconic Adams Family outfit is Wednesday. Yeah. Everyone else is kind of wearing what you expect them to wear. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But she's it's in like a hideous else. netted corset dress. Yeah. I have to be honest, I think the Broadway costume was far closer to the original comics. Mm-hmm. Like the button okay. down dress and yeah. like the white spats. UK tour. No. That's no. that's not how Wednesday Adams looks to me. No. <laughs> Sorry. No. <laughs> Just not. But another thing was the plot. So much freaking plot. And you know what I did? I wrote it all out for you. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so, the plot of the Adams Family musical includes the Wednesday-Lucas relationship and all its troubles, Morticia and Gomez, secrets and lies, and Go- Morticia thinks that Gomez is having an affair because, Which yeah, happen. that would really happen. Wouldn't Thank happen. you. Absolutely. Um, the Beinekees, which is Lucas's family having their own marriage troubles, which come to light. Pugsley worrying about Wednesday leaving, which leads to all the full disclosure business. Fester being in love with the moon, whilst also being a strange, omnipresent narrator that has control over all the action of the musical, and all the ancestors that can't go back to their grave until Wednesday and Lucas's troubles are resolved. Uh, can I also say the thing that I hate most about the ancestor thing, and I don't know if it happened in the Broadway version, why are they all just stereotypes from different countries? That's a very good point. I would like to build upon that. <laughs> they're ancestors. And like, you're, they're, they're from your family. That's what ancestor means. So why do you have like a matador and then like, do they have a geisha? I think they had a geisha. geisha in the tour played by a white blonde woman. Oh. Which is oh, another no. thing that I would like to just briefly touch upon. I mean, first of all, the use of stereotypical people, like characters, recognisable characters as the ancestors just doesn't really make sense anyway, because then you're like, what is this family's heritage? And then also not casting it appropriately. It is a fight that I am so aware of going on right now in the world to try and get things cast appropriately. And I remember when I saw the tour, that was the first thing I noticed in the programme, that there was a geisha ancestor was the name of the character. And then the person in the photograph was a blonde white woman. And I was so mad. It's just, it's not acceptable in the professional industry for people not to be cast appropriately. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it really because grinds my what gears. it'll be, it'll be that cheap, stupid thing that they do. We're like, well, we have to have someone that covers Wednesday and we can't just have, we'll have to just give her a role. It's always, yeah. The, yeah. this is what always bothered me. They do it with Miss Saigon as well. And I'm like, mm-hmm. there's no shame in just having someone else that doesn't come on stage that you pay, like just to be yeah. cover. Like there's yeah. nothing wrong with yeah. that. Nothing. Yeah. 
it's yeah it's just so crazy because another note that i had i think one of the issues with the adams family is because i'm not kidding that is the plot and that's the revised plot mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. one of the things in reading some reviews that because it did get kind of like mixed reviews both here and in the u.s and one of the things they kept bringing up was that there was so much plot so, so many storylines yeah and i think as well unnecessary uh, absolutely and I think one of the issues is because it's so oversaturated with characters. You've got, you've got the Adams, which are seven people, the Beinikes, which are three, and then the Ancestors, which are like eight to ten ensemble members. And all the named characters have their own storylines, with the exception of both Lurch and Grandma Adams. And I wanted to ask you this, if you remember the UK tour, did she appear at all in it? It not in like the group numbers there was one where she gives a potion to pugsley yeah yeah but that's all i can think of but i'm like she's one of the best she is like i would say the only funny character in the show yeah also the woman that played her on broadway is jackie hoffman who is like an amazing character actress Yep. So she must have done more in the Broadway production. Yeah, because I think they cut they cut a lot of stuff from Broadway before it came over here. Right. But I think that inadvertently cut a lot of her stuff. Right. A lot and of then... Grandma Adam's stuff. And it's just it's just it's just it's just so annoying. It's so annoying. Because I have so many issues with this musical mm-hmm. because I, again, I don't mind the score. I think the score is really, really good. I'm a big fan of Andrew Lippa. I really like some of his other work. But I just don't... Just tonally, it's all over the place. Oh, yeah. Because, see, even if you look at the original comics, like, it's quirky, it's quirky but it is still quite dark. <laughs> they're, mm. they're witty. They were just, like, single-panel comics. And they were they were really witty and quite funny. But... I think the humour the humour comes from the fact that what they're saying is true to them. Yeah. 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 And and that's what creates the the unnormalness yeah. quote unquote of what like we find funny. Whereas in the musical they tried to be like, well we're gonna have to try and write them something that makes them seem odd. And it's like yeah. well, no they're, they're, they are odd. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's it. You don't need to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I hate I hate crazier for you. I just I oh, hate it. that thing still or, haunts me in my dreams. I'm just like <laughs> this is stupid because also like you have to pick what way is Wednesday not wanting to be like the family or is she wanting to be like the family? Yeah, because I'm thinking that Lucas doesn't want to be like the family because he's making Wednesday turn into a different person. Mm-hmm. So like you can't just suddenly be like oh well we'll just mash them together and see what happens. Yeah, it's that's so, a good point. It's so stupid. I think- like, we've already kind of touched on it, and I think I've said this in an episode before, but some of the things that bother me the most is that the fundamentals, not even just as the family as a whole unit, but the fundamental characteristics of each individual character are completely thrown out the window to create this story. Morticia, thinking that Gomez might be cheating on her, would never happen because they are so mm-hmm. madly, deeply in love with each other. 
I feel like there's no relationship between Gomez and Fester in the musical. I feel like there are barely mm-hmm. yep. any interaction. Yeah. I also don't like that she takes off her long skirt to do the tango, Morticia. I feel like she should, she would tango in her floor-length dress. She wouldn't take it off to have a little sarong. Um, that's just a small <laughs> costume thing that I'm not happy with. Uh, Wednesday wouldn't refer to her dad as daddy. She would no. never call him daddy. And she wouldn't have this existential crisis. Like, it just... No. Yeah. Where, where has she been exposed to this other type of family that she might then think, oh, my family's not usual for her, her well, I think it, change? Well, I think it's implied that Lucas is that, right? Right. Yeah, I like, suppose that's true. It's implied that Lucas is that. But then Lucas isn't the all-American boy because then you meet the family and then it's like, yeah. well, this, this thing that she's just sang about being pulled towards, well, he's not that. So... <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Like, what, what are you being pulled towards? It's so oh stupid. God. Well, this brings me nicely onto some bad reviews. Yes. Love it. Okay. Is so it from us or are there actually I mean, <laughs> we have given plenty of material. No, this is three professional reviews from the first production. So, number one, the Adams family began life in two dimensions on the page of the New York of the New Yorker. In moving to Broadway, they dropped one. oh my god that's so good I enjoy that I want that writer to be my friend Um, number two it pains me to say it but the Adams family has been reduced to one snap because of (gasps) one snap and lastly (laughs) it really hurts things lastly how many talented people does it take to screw up a concept (gasps) that's brutal Brutal. At least they called them. Ta- at least they called them talented, though. Yeah, that's nice. They acknowledge, like, you've got good work. What? If, where, where did you go wrong? Um, I mean, you do think the American one. You think of the people that they got to be in that oh, show. I mean, picking Nathan Lane. Huh? Like Nathan Lane was like he's like yeah. massive. North, like Jackie Hoffman, Terence Mann Absolutely. is like, he's like a Yeah, like. Oh, and even like Christopher Rodriguez and Wesley Taylor, like they were up yeah. and coming, like totally. musical stars. Yeah. Like, where did it go wrong? What? Again, it come it comes back to this integrity thing, integrity your, to your source material and what mm-hmm. you can take. Because obviously, if we look now, we are big fans of the nineteen nineties Adams Family and Adams Family Values films. And personally, mm-hmm. I think they are the best adaptations of the Adams Family comics because the, the play, the Adamses are normal, everybody else is bonkers. And mm-hmm. you see that in the Barry Sonnenfeld films is that the Adams are so unapologetically weird and it just makes all the normal people look highly irritating and really annoying. Absolutely. <laughs> and like, works, absolutely agree. It works so well. And it just, I think they had a good, good, I use that word very loosely, um, concept of Wednesday falling in love with somebody that's not an Adams. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting idea. But why couldn't we explore the dynamic of that rather than... It would be far more interesting trying to see her integrate someone else into her family. Yeah. Than watching her trying to break away from them. 
Yeah. And actually, so much more humour would have come from that because she would have been like this and this person would have been like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it would have been like, them just being themselves would create the humour instead of having to create a fake game. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like the admins play that kind of game. (laughs) They play things like... like, Crossbows. Russian roulette. Yeah. R- Russian roulette. Yeah. Russian roulette. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Fester? If you want. <laughs> it is, no, it's just... Uh, I just don't understand. I think... Right. Personally, I think Fester is one of the most interesting characters in the Adams Family because he is bonkers. And... I mean, nothing will ever talk Christopher Lloyd's portrayal, let's be honest here. But... Never. He is bonkers. But also, the way this... The way the musical is written, it's this whole concept of him acknowledging the audience, but mm-hmm. nobody else's. Nobody else's. And he's just this kind of narrator that also has power over the story. He stops the end of full disclosure, so you go into the interval. Mm-hmm. He talks to the ancestors and explains this is what's going to happen because if they don't fall in love again. You two, you're not going to be able to go. And I just don't understand the purpose of it. I don't get it. I don't know if it's because they were like, yeah, they panicked and they were like, we need to give them something to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it all, the, the whole opening kind of like the fact that they start with him doing this. And then even when you're in Adams, it's all the way that they did it in the UK version. It was, it was all to the audience and then no other song yeah. was to the audience. Yeah. And I was like, it's like you've done like a, a prologue and then you want like commercials and then you want to start the piece. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or like that was a trailer that you'd made to, just to advertise the show. But then, yeah, they all go back to fourth wall and then he comes in and out and then has control over these ancestors and you don't really understand why. Yeah, exactly. It's almost be like, I'd rather he just not have been in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the fact that that's kind of his relationship with the ancestors and the audience is probably why I feel like there's such a disconnect between him and the actual family. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. doesn't feel that's like he's included in the story in a weird mm-hmm. kind of way, from what I can remember. Yeah. yeah. It, just, it just didn't work. It just didn't. It's, and it's yeah. just bad. And, give, and then he has to have a song, and you're like, but why does he have to have a song? Because the song doesn't do anything. It doesn't. Exactly. move the story along if anything it just adds another complicated layer of what is happening like yeah, yeah. it's so true it's all this it's all this there's so there's plot on top of plot on top of plot and there's so much to the point you need to have like a clear through line mm-hmm. when it comes to a, the plot of a musical you need to and you had that with the wednesday lucas thing that could mm-hmm. easily just be your plot yeah. and then maybe have the family being weird doing little tiny subplot things but you have those weird subplots and the whole fact that his is that he's in love with the moon and you're yeah. like, what? what Just... What, what, where did that come from? Who yeah. sat in the room in the production meeting and thought, Fester loves the moon. What a brilliant <laughs> idea. Get a computer, write it up. Like, that's it. We're ha- I just think... Uh, and nobody thought, um, no, that's not a good idea. But thanks. Yeah. Absolutely. I just don't... Und- I, there's so many de- character decisions in this musical that makes me want to go, did you read your source material? Because I don't think you did. I even think, reading, did you not watch the films? 
Exactly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you want to go back and read old comics? Like, that's your choice. Yeah. But, like, you must have you seen want... the movies. They're on Netflix. <laughs> you want a musical yeah. that feels like an extension of the story that we know and love? Yeah. yeah. And not something that just is completely separate from whatever has existed before. It just yeah. feels... I yeah. feel like the musical itself wouldn't have been terrible if it wasn't about the Adams Family. But obviously they needed mm-hmm. a hook to get people to see it. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what it feels Agreed. like. Yeah. 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 And I think the creatives could make the argument that because I have issues with when you're an Adams, because the Adams wouldn't explain why they're weird because they're not weird. No. They're normal to themselves. No. Yeah. Um, I think they would argue that, oh, we need an introduction song so people who don't know what the Adams Family is know what this is all about. But I think the thing is, is that the Adams Family has managed to transcend from its original start as Charles Adams Comics, and that they are just like a constant in the public consciousness. Now, everyone knows who the Adams Family are. They're still making films. There was that animated film that came out. Which was actually pretty good. by the way. I still haven't watched it, shamefully. I've not seen it either. <laughs> um, so it's not like most of your audience are going to know who the Adams Family are and what yeah. they're about. Yeah. Because they're still so present and are passed down to like people. People still watch the 90s films and rave about them because we they're did, so well made. We did not long ago. <laughs> we did yeah, not long literally ago. literally a matter of <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not that long ago. So it just, it really annoys me that they just tore apart what those characters are all about and are just, and in in their place are just kind of like vague lookalikes of the the original material. And I would also like to point out that I think poor Morticia was cheated out of a costume and a half. Her costume is awful. She's wearing a maxi dress, a black maxi dress. That's what she's wearing. Literally. Literally, she's supposed to be the epitome of glamour and she was in literally a couple of yards of chiffon. And she popped a plait in for doing the tango. And she popped a plait in. She wouldn't pop a plait in. She would keep her hair down and let it fly free. <laughs> That's to do with bad it's wigging. Like, it's like they took all the sensuality out of her. Yes. Absolutely. That's um, 100% that's, it. That, that, that's why she's so desirable yeah. to yeah. Gomez. Yeah. I mean, I think they kept, there was like some like nice little things that they kept in the UK tour, whether that was on the director's part or the writer's part, I don't know. There was the nice th- little things taken from the comics, such as her cutting the heads off roses, like Gomez being good with a rapier, um, th- like l- little things like that that show that they're aware that the source material exists, mm-hmm. that, it is a, that it is a thing. But I just, I just, oh, the show, I just have as much. Also, the fact that I saw it like 10 times in one week did not help (laughs) the situation. I have nothing else to say about Adams. I've got nothing else to say either. I'm ranted out. In which case, I will bring us to my surprise. (gasps) <gasps> yes of course which is that I saved some of my fun facts which have been mentioned in passing but I thought I'll present them as fun facts anyway in the form of a quiz <gasps> oh, oh yeah 
Yeah, just for fun. There's only 10 questions. Some of them you know the answers to already, So, but we'll keep it in because it'll be interesting for the listeners. So question number one of my quiz oh is, can you rank the five musicals in order of the most performances to the least performances on Broadway and the West End? So I, th- I think it's Phantom, Sweeney, Adams, Jekyll and Hyde, and, um, well, Hunchback was never on Broadway, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, do you yeah, agree, man. Hannah, or do you have a similar? I am going to agree, but I'm going to... So I'm going to go, like, Phantom, Sweeney, then I'm going to go Jekyll, then I'm going to go Adams, and then I'll go Hunchback. Okay. So in first place, we have The Phantom, which has a combined number of about 25,000 performances. Um, Broadway has slightly more than The West End, but only just. Then we have, in second place, Jekyll and Hyde, which had a (gasps) 1,543 performance run on Broadway, but has never been in The West End. Wow. Then we have The Addams Family, which again has never had a West End run, but had 722 performances on Broadway. In fourth place, surprisingly low down on the list is Sweeney Todd, which only had a total of 715 performances on Broadway and the West End. So it's 558 on Broadway. Only 157 in the West End. (gasps) And of course, last place is Hunchback at Zero because it has never been on either. Sad times. Yeah. Um, wow. Oh my God. Uh, question number two. Where <laughs> did Hunchback premiere? Oh, Berlin. It was in Berlin. It was in Berlin. Theater am Potsdamer Platz. That's the <laughs> one. Glad you said it, not me. In 1999. Uh, number three. Uh, so you do know the answer to this one, I think. How many of Christine's men in her life has Ramin Karimloo played? All three. Yeah, all three, yeah. All yeah, three. he has been the Phantom Raoul, and in the movie, he was the photograph of her dad. So yeah, all three. Number four. Do you know why Sweeney has a white streak in his hair in the film? The stress. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, the stress and or shock. <laughs> in film, there is a trope that having a white streak in your hair is a representation of sin. So, Bride ah. of Frankenstein, white streak represents sin. Similar situation to Big Sweens. Uh, number five, Nathan Lane appeared in the original Broadway production of The Addams Family. But where else within the Addams Family universe may we have seen Nathan oh, Lane? Oh, I know, I know, I know. Miss Hannah Brown? <laughs> He is the policeman that Gomez talks to in the Adams Family Values. That's absolutely correct. Thank well you very done. much. Well yes. done. Um, number six. Who played Jekyll and Hyde in the 2001 television movie? David Hasselhoff. It is David Hasselhoff. So Fantastic weird. work. <laughs> number seven. Which film has references to The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Jekyll and Hyde, as well as The Wizard of Oz, A Christmas Carol, The Shining, and more. And it's not this podcast? And it's not this podcast. <laughs> Which movie? Which movie? I have absolutely no idea. No, me either. I can't even think. 
It is the 1994 movie starring Macaulay Culkin, Page Master. Oh, uh, I, th- I thought you were going to say yeah. like Home Alone. I was like, oh, I've never seen that. <laughs> You've never seen uh, Home no. Alone? No, I've never seen Page Master. Oh. oh, Page Master is so good. So it references many, many books. It's Macaulay Culkin, I think, slips in a library and bashes his head and he gets transported into the universes of all these different books. I love that. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg's oh. plays a book. Uh, number eight. What has sometimes writing been compared to by writer John Logan? I don't expect you to know the answer to this one. I, but I feel like it's probably going to be an insult. Okay. Oh, you think, is it not? It's an open to interpretation. I mean, I I would say if someone's going to, it's like Shakespeare. Yeah, that's so what clever I was with okay. words. Yeah, Shakespeare. Um, he has said that sometimes musicals are like mountain climbers climbing Mount Everest with no oxygen and no Sherpas. Oh, rude. So he thinks that it's just incredibly challenging, which I can confirm. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, number nine, again, you know the answer to this one. Frollo's job in the musical is a judge, but in the novel, what is he? He'd be an archdeacon. He'd be an archdeacon. And lastly, number 10, where does the name Quasimodo come from? It means half-formed, and it comes from... Is it Latin? Latin? <laughs> is it, Latin? <laughs> it is Latin. The Yay. literal Latin translation is almost standard uh, or similar oh. to. So it's like he is uh, almost human, almost Ooh. like a normal person, wow. which is like half formed. It's kind of like it all kind of. It's just what he says because he, he gave the, the boy a, a, a name that which meant half formed, Quasimodo. Now here is a so rhythm. Yes, <laughs> if you can, sing the bells of Nord. Well, yeah, there you are. That's your little quiz. Thanks. Yay, I like that. Was that gothic? A wee bit. Who does the editing? You or Chris? McLeish. God, he has got a... <laughs> He's got yeah. a tough night. <laughs> He's got a lot of work ahead of him. Sorry, Chris. Sorry, sorry future Chris. Sorry, Chris. Sorry, Chris. Um, oh.